The European Union considers a ban on travelers from the United States as COVID-19 cases surge. And New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut are now requiring travelers from states with serious outbreaks to enter a 14-day quarantine upon entering. The U.S. has had its single worst day of COVID-19 transmission last week. This is America Dissected. I'm your host, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. And we are nowhere near done with this. COVID-19 cases are surging in California, Florida, Arizona, Texas, the Carolinas, and many other states, driving overall U.S. transmission rates to their highest point yet, and officially putting to rest the bunk hypothesis that the summer heat would fry COVID-19. Yeah, that's not happening. And also not happening is any real federal response to the surging case count. In fact, the Trump administration just announced that it was putting the kibosh on 13 federally funded testing centers including seven in Texas, which is one of the states with the worst outbreaks. For their part, cases are surging fastest in states where governors opened earliest, where the lockdown was neither long enough or intense enough to knock down the cases, leaving enough cases to see the transmission we're seeing now. It appears to be part of a strategy of declaring victory early and then just ignoring the virus altogether, while allowing right-wing mouthpieces to continue to politicize the public health interventions we need to stop it. Here's one pundit. The cost of shutting down the United States and denying our citizens desperately needed contact with one another is hard to calculate, but the cost has been staggering. The people responsible for doing all of this say they have no regrets about it. We faced a global calamity, they say. That's what they're telling us. Is it true? And the message is getting out. This was from a community hearing in Palm Beach, Florida. You literally cannot mandate somebody to wear a mask knowing that that mask is killing people. It literally is killing people. And my, the people, we the people, are waking up. And we know what citizen's arrest is. Because citizen's arrests are already happening, okay? And every single one of you that are obeying the devil's laws are going to be arrested. In a Pew Research poll, people who leaned Republican were 22% less likely to report wearing a mask in public most of the time. Here's the thing, they have lungs too, and they can get coronavirus. And the evidence on masks is clear. A systematic review of the literature in The Lancet found that wearing a mask reduced the risk of transmission by 85%. And another study found that in just 37 days between April 8th and May 15th, mandates requiring masks in 15 states in D.C. prevented up to 450,000 cases of COVID-19. Luckily, 80% of Americans overall report wearing masks in public most or at least some of the time. But here's the problem. 20% don't. And if you take a look at where cases are spiking, Texas, Arizona, the Carolinas, you'll appreciate that that spells bad news. And don't get me wrong. This isn't about shaming folks who don't wear masks. But it is about shaming the pundits and politicians who've told them that if they wear masks, they don't believe in liberty or freedom. WTF does wearing a mask to protect yourself and others from a super infectious, deadly virus have to do with freedom? Probably as much as waving a Confederate flag. It's part of a broader politics of division that aims to destroy institutions that Americans trust, like science and public health. And who loses? All of the people who actually suffer and die, and the people who love them. Because you know who one person is who actually can get a coronavirus test whenever he wants one? Donald Trump. The politics of division have big implications for our global fight against COVID-19, too. Last month, Donald Trump said this. I'm instructing my administration to halt funding of the World Health Organization while a review is conducted to assess the World 
health organization's role in severely mismanaging and covering up the spread of the coronavirus. One of the reasons he could get away with it is that few people actually know what the WHO does and why it's so critical to global health, like, say, in the middle of a global pandemic. So to learn more, I called up someone who's been studying the WHO her entire career. We'll talk to Professor Kelly Lee after the break. All right, we're really lucky to be joined today by Professor Kelly Lee. She is a professor and Canada Research Chair in Health Sciences at Simon Fraser University, where she focuses on global health governance and globalization and health. Professor Lee, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on this podcast. You're very welcome. Thanks for asking me. I want to jump right in because, you know, the the WHO, or a lot of folks call the WHO, which uh, I always remind folks, that's the name of a band, not a um, global organization. So the WHO is an organization that's newly in the news. And for a lot of folks, they haven't really heard about it until now. As far as as global governance goes, you never really want to be in the news in the middle of of a global crisis. But can you give us a sense of what the WHO is in terms of its role in global health coordination in general? Yes, sure. That's a great place to start. There's a lot of assumptions about WHO and what it's supposed to do. So a great start to the conversation. I think briefly, I would like to tell people that it has been around a long time. 1948 is when WHO was established. And it was established as the UN Specialized Agency for Health. And what that means is that it it was given the role to direct and coordinate uh, international health work. Um, And I'll say a little bit more about what that means in a minute. But, you know, there are 194 member states including the U.S. They meet annually at a World Health Assembly, and there's an executive board that gives effect to decisions. There's a secretariat of about 7,000 people distributed around the world. There's a headquarters in Geneva and so on. WHO is mandated to do two categories of things. There's 26 functions in its constitution, so it's got a lot of work on its plate, but we can organize it in terms of two functions. One is known as normative functions, And these are uh, activities that revolve around collecting information, collecting, analyzing, sharing data on all sorts of things around health and and disease. And this work really involves reviewing a lot of the evidence, producing protocols, guidelines, and so on. So if you ever wonder why a disease like SARS is actually called SARS, Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, it's because a committee in WHO sat down and classified that disease, named it, and everybody is talking about the same thing. And so this kind of work involves a lot of committee work. And I think, you know, people don't often think about sitting around big tables as global health work. Um, And it's because it's probably because it's less hands on than, say, immunizing children or weighing babies, which is what you think about when you think of UNICEF. And and then often, you know, films like Contagion, you, you think about the heroes with white coats running up and down hospital corridors. And that's not really what WHO does. And I think oftentimes that's why it doesn't really hit the news. Um, there's a lot of technical meetings and so on. But that work's really important. It's very foundational for the kind of work that these heroic figures actually do on the front line, you know, pr- provides all those protocols and so on. And the the second type of work that WHO does is called technical cooperation. So it works with a lot of low and middle income countries to try and apply some of those protocols, those guidelines in in a local context. So it's, it's quite unique in that sense. It's highly respected in the developing world. It works on everything from treating drug-resistant malaria to health promotion campaigns. Um, it's it's a very well-respected organization in the developing world generally, and it has a unique role in that respect. So we find ourselves now in the midst of a global pandemic. And how does the WHO's role evolve now in the, in the middle of this crisis? Yeah, in addition to what I've just described, along comes COVID-19 as a disease event. So 
WHO is tasked with coordinating the global response to these sorts of uh, events. And, and it's important to recognize there's no other organization in the world that actually has that responsibility. So what WHO, it swings into action, just does a couple of things. First of all, it collects epidemic intelligence. So that means that it gathers information from all sorts of sources, official sources, namely governments, who are really legally obliged to provide that information to WHO. But there's also collaborating centers and you know labs around the world and so on. And WHO also collects that information from unofficial sources, things like individual scientists, alert systems, even the media is, a, is an important uh, source of information. So all that information goes into WHO. The, this committee sits every day, reviews this intelligence, and there is a decision taken whether an alert needs to go out to member states. So they often issue these disease outbreak news bulletins. And basically what WHO is saying, pay attention, you know, something's happened, it's unusual, people should sit up and pay attention. The second thing that WHO does when there's an outbreak or a disease event is that it, it advises us on what member states should do. So it gathers together the scientific and technical expertise that is worldwide. It may convene committees, emergency committees or expert groups. And it then issues all sorts of guidelines, all sorts of technical advice. So we've seen that pouring out of Geneva during this, this pandemic. And then finally, what WHO does is where the member states are unable to respond or they, they're lacking resources, WHO will mobilize resources, disperse it to countries that need it. So we know there's been big shortages of PPE. It's been very difficult for most countries to get enough supplies. In the developing world, it's particularly problematic. And so WHO has been working hard to do that as well. So it's a very busy role. I know a lot of people are pointing fingers and, you know, finding blame for, you know, the things have not gone the way that perhaps we wanted it to. And I think what we have to remember is that we need to figure out whether this pandemic has been the result of something WHO did or did not do, whether it's something to do with the member states not doing things or doing things that they shouldn't have, or whether it's something to do with the nature of this pathogen. Because we live in a very interconnected world, and this is a new pathogen, and, you know, maybe something to do with that. So it may be well be a combination of all these three things, and, and we just need to figure this out going forward. So in your estimation, what grade would you give the WHO in terms of how it's performed its responsibilities in the midst of this pandemic? I think it's performed the way it's designed. You know, all these three functions that I've described is set out in the International Health Regulations, which is a legal treaty that sets out a framework for what WHO is supposed to do and what member states are supposed to do. The things have unfolded generally the way that the IHR set out. The question is whether they were done in a timely manner and whether, you know, WHO acted on the information it was given in a timely manner. I personally think it did, whether it got all the full information. That's the big question I think people are raising. And why didn't it get the information that it needed? This comes down to uh, member states' responsibility as well as WHO. So there's a lot of, as I say, finger pointing. And we won't know until we get this investigation, which member states have agreed to. But generally, if we're not happy with the way WHO has performed, it's something that we need to then look at in terms of how we design the organization to work. It may be something that, you know, in this constitution that was created in 1948, perhaps it's a bit obsolete and we need to think about how we need to update it. And as a scholar who thinks about global health governance every day, what do you make of Donald Trump's plans to defund the WHO and what could the consequences be? Yes, I think it's a huge mistake. Uh, the decision to withdraw membership, really, it couldn't happen at a worse time. 
the details, you know, about what the Trump administration actually means is actually not really clear at this point. And so I'm not really sure what cutting ties or cutting funds actually means at this point. I know that Secretary of State Mike Pompeo has made noises about some exceptions to cutting the ties. But let, let's just assume that there's going to be a withdrawal, something like a Cuban or North Korean style of cutting ties. I think generally there's going to be negative consequences, both for American interests and really for global health security more generally. So if we look at the budget of WHO, and it's, you know, it sounds like a lot of numbers, a lot of zeros, but if we break it down, it receives about $4.8 billion every two years. So that's $2.4 billion a year. And that's to cover, as I say, 194 member states cooperation with those countries doing all the work that I've just described. So American funding is about 18 to 20% of that budget. And so any organization is going to be hurt by a 20% cut. You know, it's just undoubtedly it's going to hurt. But I think what we have to understand is that how WHO is funded as well is very important in terms of how it's going to be affected. So generally, WHO is funded by two pots of money. One is a sort of assessed contributions. It's kind of like a membership fee. If you want to be a member state, you have to pay this fee. And that's weighted according to how big your country is and how rich your country is. So U.S. comes out as the largest uh, contributor to assessed contributions. It also takes in what are known as voluntary contributions. And so the split between those two pots of money is about 25-75. So most of the funds that WHO gets is voluntary contributions. And the U.S. gives a large proportion of those funds. So very appreciative of, of American people. And those funds are really important because they're generally earmarked for specific purposes. So polio eradication, for example, we're very, very close to eradicating polio. The U.S. has played a big role in that. If the money gets pulled out, you know, we, we may put that into jeopardy and we will likely put that into jeopardy. We're like 99% there. Other things that the U.S. government has actually supported, tuberculosis, uh, hepatitis, all these things that really the U.S. government has chosen to support, it's decided now to pull the money out. So these will impact those programs that, you know, there won't be vaccination programs going forward. And what this means is that the U.S. government will, yeah, save some money, will make its point that it's not happy. But all these programs will suffer. And a lot of these people on the ground are not going to get the kind of critical supplies or the technical advice that they need to keep themselves safe, but also to keep the world safe. You know, we've learned from this pandemic that we need to think about the world as our neighbors. And so if we're pulling the resources from those programs, we're actually hurting ourselves. It's really shooting yourselves in the foot, really. Yeah. And, and you'd think that one of the main lessons that comes out of COVID-19 is that, in fact, to borrow a quote from Martin Luther King Jr., a threat to health anywhere is a threat to health everywhere. Um, obviously changed up for our purposes here. But um, the other part of this is that we're starting to see not only has the US been the single biggest epicenter of this pandemic for the last several months, but you know our neighbors to the south are starting to catch up. Mexico and Brazil uh, and other countries in Central and South America um, now have very active transmission. Can you speak to what that tells us about the state of this pandemic and what you're worried about and what you're thinking about when we think about the global spread of the disease and what we need to do next to take it on? Sure. Yeah, the numbers are not looking good for sure. It's You're right that we're seeing a rapid increase in new cases in many countries uh, in different regions. It's highly concerning for a number of reasons. First, the rise in cases and deaths are probably an underestimate. Uh, and, and I think despite what President Trump believes, testing is actually a good thing. 
We want to know how many cases are out there. We need to know in order to control community transmission. So we need to increase the testing. Um, and in many of these countries, testing is happening at a much lower rate than we need to have happen, including in Brazil and India, as you mentioned. You know, now the second and fourth in the world, I think, for cases. So this means that as bad as the picture looks, it's probably even worse than we know at this time. So we're currently not counting all the cases. And the second thing is, I think that's the same for death. Um, counting COVID-related deaths is actually really difficult in many countries. It's about testing who has it, both alive and dead. And we're not doing that. So we're not doing that enough. And we're having countries that have really high cases, but low deaths, and it doesn't quite add up. And so something we're not, you know, having all the information come forward. And that that's very concerning because we're not getting a full picture. And I guess the third thing is that it means then that the pandemic is worsening as we're being warned. It's accelerating. And this is going to prolong the pandemic for everyone. So people living in high income countries, they think that maybe there's a plateau or maybe even declining. But if it's still accelerating out there in the world, we are, just as you said, we are not safe. None of us are safe. So it's not just a developing world problem. We're seeing, you know, all sorts of countries experiencing this acceleration. And um, we're talking about second wave, third wave, who knows? This is really very concerning, these numbers. So we really need to get this virus under control as we've been trying to do. And that's, you know, something that we need to think about from a planetary perspective. We need to look at these numbers and we need to understand what's going on. We need to know what we're not seeing, what we're missing. And then we need to take this kind of global approach because that, you know, it's, it's clearly a, a global um, trend that's happening. And one of the frustrating things is that a lot of these leaders seem to be taking their cue from the dismissiveness and the you know, implicit juxtaposition of taking on the public health crisis or servicing the economy rather than recognizing that, in fact, the only way to a good economy is by taking on the virus. Um, can you speak to what we're seeing out of leaders in uh, lower and middle income countries and, and maybe what the precedent set by Donald Trump may be communicating to them? There are discernible patterns emerging across the country, uh, across the world, I should say, um, with the data that we have in terms of which countries and regions within countries are seeing the highest number of cases and deaths and which are not. So one of the factors contributing to these patterns has been lockdowns in location where there are lockdowns and they've been imposed earliest um, and they've been strictly adhered to, what we've seen is that there are fewer cases and fewer deaths. And so those regions have really truly flattened the curve. And it's those jurisdictions where political leaders have resisted lockdowns or been slower to adopt them because of economic reasons, very concerned about, you know, economic impacts. What we're seeing is those areas of the world tend to be worse hit. Their slow action has really proven to be counterproductive because what we're seeing in consequence is a really huge public health impact, but also a huge economic impact. You know, it's not as if, oh, they saved us a lot of economic impact, but it's, it's not a trade-off. You actually have a worse situation in both cases. And so what we've learned from the pandemic so far is, of course, we need to balance really a complex array of factors when we're dealing with an outbreak. There's public health measures, there's economic, social, political, and so on. So policymakers are having to really move in real time, dealing with a novel pathogen, uh, and do, making these decisions, you know, on a whole 
host of missing data. And so it's, it's really extremely difficult. Uh, and there's key times, I think, when public health considerations have to be foremost when you're defining the de those decisions. It's during the early part of a pandemic, first and foremost, you have to get that transmission under control. And, you know, we've learned that this doesn't happen with half measures. In retrospect, you know, we, we know now that we have to have that economic pain and social pain and shutting down economies was what really was effective. But we know also that inflicting that pain, we need to ease it with some other policies, whether it's lost wages, with compensation, with you know rents, low interest loans, all sorts of things that we could do to ease that pain. But it, that pain has had to be felt initially. And so, you know, it's, it's looking back, you can, of course, everybody knows, you know, what's the best to do when you're looking back. But I think as we go forward, what we have to realize is this is really about holding the course. I know a lot of people are itching to get out there again and, you know, resume their lives, but we're still in the middle of a really the worst pandemic in a century. And we have to recognize that we have to be strong and, you know, help each other, of course, to get through that period when we need to do the things that we need to do. Mm. And, you know, you're speaking to the fact that, you know, evidence has been pretty clear about how early a lockdown started and how long it persisted tends to predict what happens thereafter. And, you know, we know that that causes real economic pain, but it also means the ability to control the virus, which then allows the economy to flourish thereafter. Can you tell folks what they can do if they, they want to be helpful around taking on the pandemic globally? I mean, I think a lot of folks are really frustrated by the feeling of helplessness. Is there something that you recommend that they do? Yes, there's a lot of things that listeners can do. You know, it's it, that feeling of helplessness when you're, you know, locked inside your house and everything's going on outside. It's It does feel like things are out of control. So first of all, I think what people can do if they can, there are many, many charities out there working extremely hard to support populations at risk, both in the US and, and abroad. So there's food banks, the Red Cross, Oxfam, and so on. There's no shortage of those charities. They all need help because fundraising is really difficult at this time. They can't do the usual things that they do to raise funds. So you can give money if that that's something that you can do to help. And you might think, well, why, why should I do that? Well, there are clear humanitarian reasons, of course, but there's also because if we don't get a hold of this pandemic, wherever it is in the world, we're going to not get hold of it at home. So I think there's this thing that, you know, solidarity, we need to think about our neighbors as both near and far, and giving funds is, is really an important part of that. And so, and I also know that a lot of people cannot open their wallets at this time, they're facing financial difficulties. And I totally understand that not everyone's in the same position. So I would say at a minimum, then, I would encourage people to open their minds. I mean, really think about this issue, get informed about WHO in this context of this conversation. Um, we're learning more about pandemics and about viruses and so on. People talk about things that, uh, you know, around dinner tables that they didn't do a, a few months ago. And it's really important to have those conversations. I would add WHO to that conversation. Think about its history, its mandate. We need to design something going forward that is better. Clearly, nobody's got this right in this pandemic. You know, we all fail. The, we've got failing grades in, in many respects. But, you know, we, we need to think then, OK, well, what do we need going forward? What kind of organization do we need to make us safer for the next time? Because there is going to be more pandemics, as you know, as I know, this is not the last one. And this could be actually a good practice for us to think about what we're missing what kind of collective action we need, what kind of organizations we need to enable us to work together better. I think that would be a great way for listeners to, you know, add to that conversation. We need the best ideas. We need great ideas. 
going forward. And I think that would be the way that they could contribute. Well, thank you so much. We really, really appreciate your insights and your perspective and uh, really grateful to have you on the show. And, and let's hope that you know all of us start to think differently about how in this we really are together because you know we we do all live on this globe and pandemic has shown us how connected we really are so we've got to start thinking that way and um deeply appreciate your insight and, and your perspective on that really appreciate the opportunity thanks for inviting me as usual here's what i'm watching right now last week was a disaster when it came to covid19 transmission in america but where do we go from here even in the hardest hit states governors are in a bind that they've put themselves in They've dug in on Trump's politics, pitting the economy against public health, but that leaves them without any tools in their arsenal. Meanwhile, hospitals are filling up fast. But with cases skyrocketing, how bad will it have to get for them to act decisively? And what will that look like if they're vowing not to restrict interaction and reimpose strict social distancing? And one last point. A study from the CDC looking at antibodies suggests that 10 times as many people as previously reported might have had COVID-19. That has serious implications for stopping the disease. Why are we missing 9 out of 10 cases of COVID-19 and what can we do about it, particularly considering the fact that Donald Trump wants to dial back COVID-19 testing? That's why here at Crooked Media, we're organizing to replace Donald Trump through our Vote Save America program. You know what state is absolutely critical to defeating Donald Trump? Here's a hint. I ran for governor here. The great state of Michigan. You can help defeat Trump in Michigan by heading to votesaveamerica.com and joining Team Michigan now. You'll get updates about how to get involved in our amazing state, no matter how far you are. And of course, if you'd like to support organizations on the front lines caring for some of America's most vulnerable, donate to Crooked's Coronavirus Relief Fund at crooked.com slash coronavirus. America Dissected is a product of Crooked Media. Our producer is Austin Fisher. Charlotte Landis mixes and masters the show. Production support from Tara Terpstra, Lyra Smith, and Allison Falzetta. The theme song is by Takeya Suzawa and Alex Ugiera. Our executive producer is Sarah Geismer. And I'm your host, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. Thanks for listening. <laughs>